Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. On Thursday, March 2nd, Alec Murdaugh was found guilty on all counts of the murders of his wife and son. Leading up to the verdict, his defense attorney requested to bring the jurors out of the courtroom to visit the infamous Moselle estate. While touring the hunting lodge, jurors were able to see the site of the shooting deaths of Maggie and Paul Murdaugh for themselves. The kennels and feed rooms of Moselle estate had been redone, showing no signs of violence except for the bullet holes still visible in the windows. After touring the property, the jury returned to the courtroom for closing arguments. Crime scene visits aren't a very common occurrence, so why did Alec Murdaugh's legal team want to bring the jury to his property? And how did the trip impact the jury's decision? On today's bonus episode, I'm joined by someone who can help explain why this practice is done. Criminal defense lawyer and former South Carolina U.S. attorney, Bill Nettles. Bill, you've had such great insight into exactly why and how the jurors were instructed in certain ways, and one of them being their physical tour of the Moselle estate. So can you share with us the pros and cons of that jury visit? Yeah. You know, look, I mean, the, the, the primary thing is that, like, what we're asking a jury to do is to take all of the admissible evidence and bring it all together and sort out, you know, the facts from the lies and arrive at a decision that's a well-informed decision, right? So a lot of stuff can only come up in the courtroom through oral testimony, visual testimony. But there are things, you know, where just being at the scene can provide a fuller picture for the jury. So, I mean, the only, I mean, I can't really think of a con on it, you know, I mean, if if you believe that the purpose of you know the criminal justice system is for you know uh, neutral arbitrators to decide that being the jury to decide a dispute, I mean, I think it's almost always a positive. Not in every case, but in a case where the surroundings have some can provide some context or texture to the testimony. I think it's a good idea. Always. And I really can't think of many downsides. I mean, unless, you know, the jury goes out there and sees something that's contrary to what your client wants them to see. Well, you know, that's that's just tough. Right. But I mean, I, I have always found it useful in cases where it's necessary for the jury to see the scene, even to the extent I know we did a murder case one time where uh, one of the issues was that it was a very confined space. And, you know, in getting ready for trial, we we came to realize that simply given measurements didn't do it real justice. And the room was so small that we were able to build a exact one to one replica of the room in 
in the courtroom, right? And we built it just so it could be set up real quick. We brought in like basically people who do screen, you know, for plays and stuff. And we set up and we actually built the room in the courtroom very quickly. And so the jury could then go into that room and see just how how tight it was. Right. It's like you've said before, it's a sense of scale. It brings a, a three-dimensional quality to otherwise what would be two-dimensional, right, which would just be a presentation in a courtroom. And it allows the jury to be able to appreciate, be able to make that better informed decision one way or another. Oh, I didn't realize it was so far. Of course he couldn't have heard That's it. Right. Or, oh, my gosh, That's it's right. so close. Gosh, how how, right. how, how did they even – think that he wouldn't have seen it, right? So either way, the more information, the better. And what it's not, what I want listeners to understand is that it's not a scene reenactment. So during these visits, there's no kind of presentation by the attorneys where they are continuing to persuade or attempt to persuade their case. So can you walk listeners through exactly what happens on these on-site visits? Well, I mean, that's actually a really good point, Emily. And so, I mean, what I would do if it were me you know, and 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 the times that we have done an on-site visit, what typically would happen would be so. Let's say you're going to do the site visit on Monday morning, okay, or or whatever, a Tuesday morning, is the day before. It's a good idea for the judge and both and and all the counsel involved to go to the scene and say, okay, look. Let's just make sure that nobody is bumping the pinball machine here, right? You know that like. Nobody has put up a little sign that said he didn't do it or, you know, I mean, you know, so that everybody knows exactly that the, the, all the variables are controlled. OK, and so you, you would go out beforehand. And so to make sure that to the extent possible, it absolutely looks exactly like it did when this took place. Now, what gave rise to this, obviously, is the Murdoch case you know, here. And so there the issue was more just. How far was it or the proximity to the main house, you know, and what could you see from the main house? So you could that wasn't a they weren't like doing the crime scene all over again. That was more just like the dog kennel was rather than just measuring it, actually letting them see it and and feel it and understand exactly what they were talking about. And I'm the first kind of person that would benefit from this because, you know, I'm that person where you're like, oh, how many people were at that party? And I'm like. I don't know, right. 10, and then there's actually 500. Right. I have a really difficult right. time appreciating right. quantities and distances and estimations and the like. Right. So I really would be a perfect candidate for this. So given that and given the the spectrum of diversity of jurors, what special circumstances, if any, do judges or defense or prosecution teams have to go through to request that juries visit the right. site? What is that procedure right. like? I mean, the way that we've done it is, you know, sometimes you go to the opposing counsel and say, hey, look, you know, we're thinking about asking the judge to uh, authorize a, 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 a visit of the jurors. Will you consent to it? Right. And so that always makes it easier. Right. If opposing counsel consents or, or in essence, agrees with it, then, you know, then it's like you're going to the judge saying, hey, judge, look, you know, and then what you would probably want to do is then go to the clerk and say, hey, look, we're getting ready to ask, you know, the opposing counsel and I are getting ready to jointly ask the judge, you know, if we can have a visit is, you know, is that something that y'all are capable of doing or what can we do to help it? So you want to sort of amass as much 
critical mass as you can. And then you just motion the judge. You just file a motion with the judge and you say, you know, you don't have to go into a lot of detail. But I mean, I think you would like, like want to point out, you know, in this case, the following issues are in are are relevant to the, the jury deciding whether it's, you know, in the case that I had where we built the, the small room in the courthouse. You know, everything was really close or we want to show the jury how far it is because, you know, look, we live in a society now and I'm not complaining about it, but like the notion of what a quarter of a mile away is doesn't like people used to really have some sense of that, you know. But, you know, nowadays, I mean, a lot of people probably couldn't tell you the difference between a thousand feet and five hundred feet. Right. And so, you know, when you do that. And you start to help the judge to understand. And what you need to be saying is when you're talking to the judge, because that's the person who ultimately decides it, is this is just going to help the jury make a more informed decision, because that's what everybody should be trying to get. That's right. And that's why, to your point earlier, both sides should want to agree. Um, There might be some downsides, but at the end of the day, if it's in trial, that means that both sides feel very strongly that they will succeed in court, right? That essentially that means that that 11th hour, there was no settlement reached. There was no plea deal reached. And so both of them feel that they have the stronger case, which means that any type of physical appreciation of the situation and any type of more objective information for the jury that they can appreciate truly, that is helpful to both sides, or at least would not be detrimental, right? Well, maybe, maybe not though, right? I mean, think about it. I mean, the way, as we all know, and your listeners know, and you certainly know, I mean, the way this works is there's two sides. There's side A and side B, whether that's the government and the defense or whatever. Their job, okay, their job is to take every fact and to package it in the in the most favorable light to their client. Okay, if it's a civil case, whether it's the plaintiff or the the defendant, if it's a criminal case, whether it's the defendant or the or the or the government. Right. And so if I were in a case and my job was to package the facts in such a way that, let's say, a small space was not beneficial to me, I would probably not go along with it. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, my job as a lawyer is not to seek justice but my job is to take care of my client so if if that evidence if packaging if 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 for me to package my evidence in the best way would be for the jury not to go see the scene i'm just going to object to it right i'm just going to say i don't think we need that you know we've gotten plenty of evidence here about the time it's going to take up you know about the distance so i mean i it's unusual that both sides will agree to go, but it's not unheard of. So it's almost always going to be one side wants it, the other side doesn't, simply because it suits their narrative. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. And so that brings me to my next question for you, Bill, which is as a criminal defense lawyer, but former prosecuting attorney, um, so many people have questions about that. Right. And so many people that aren't attorneys themselves or don't um, aren't privy to that sort of 
typical often move from one to the other are surprised by that. And can you sort of give your global um, thoughts for these listeners on what it's like to be an attorney that used to be a prosecutor and now is criminal defense right. and how you balance the two and, and what North Star you you go by in your profession for those that are fascinated not only by all the work that you do, but also by the notion that how can it be that you were once a Raiders fan right. and now a Patriots fan, right, or whatever? How, did, right. how do you that's reconcile right. that that's and, right. and what can you share that's with right. listeners about that? I mean, that's almost something that we could talk for a long time about because, I mean, I don't mind telling you that it has been, I mean, I originally started out as a, I mean, I went to law school to be a public defender and that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, if you talk to people that knew me after I got out of law school, I was a bomb throwing, long haired public defender, you know? (laughs) Um, And, you know, I had a lot of fun with it and I met a lot of really cool people. I tried a lot of real cool cases And, you know, I got to be a a really good lawyer because I was literally, you know, trying cases in the South in the 90s, you know, and it was just it was wild. You know, I mean, I would try two felony cases in a week, you Mm. know, Um, and and then I got the opportunity to be the United States attorney. And I was wondering, you know, during the time waiting to get it, you know, how that was going to be. And what I found out was, was that. A lot of the preconceptions that I had were just not true um, about, you know, what motivated uh, people on the other side. And, you know, I mean, some of them were true, but I don't think it was as endemic as I thought it was. Um, And so, you know, then I did that for six years and that was my job. I mean, I had a job which was to which was to make sure that, you know, justice was was fair right now i don't buy into the notion that you know i mean that just because the a government lawyer is doing it it's necessarily fair i mean they bring their biases and they bring their blind spots and 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 to the table as well and so then i left that and i went back to being a criminal defense lawyer again and we do criminal defense work and some civil work and i i wondered if whenever i made that transition from being a prosecutor back to being a criminal defense lawyer, I wondered how much of what fueled me when I was a public defender, a criminal defense lawyer before I was a United States attorney was was misconceptions and and how much of those misconceptions is what fueled me to be the lawyer that I was. And would I still be able to be a criminal defense lawyer now that I don't have those misconceptions anymore or a lot of them anymore? And what I've really found is, is that it's made me a better lawyer, not because I know the tricks on the other side. Okay. That, that there's nothing, that's not true. Okay. But what it, it's made me a better lawyer because I don't get angry about unnecessary things anymore. Right. I mean, I just kind of realize that what's happening is that, you know, conflict, whether it's civil or criminal, that rises to a criminal justice it rises to a trial is because two people have a disagreement. Okay. That's what it is, right? In a criminal case, the the state or the federal government believes that an individual, sometimes a corporation has done something that is criminal. That individual or corporation thinks, well, I don't think I did anything criminal. You know what? So the way we solve that is we have a trial, right? And at that trial, the only way that we can get justice is if the criminal defense lawyer takes care of 
his or her client. All right. And so, I mean, look, I don't have to believe. I, all I've got to do is, is, is I've got a job and my job is to go in and to make not my job is not to get somebody off. OK, let me disabuse everybody of that my job is to pull every lever I can ethically and legally. My job is to put every fact in the most favorable light. You can't change facts. You can't make up facts, but you can certainly put them in a favorable light. And my job is to make sure that the government doesn't run over my client just because they're accused of a crime. And if I do my job, much like a surgeon, right? I mean, nobody ever asked surgeons, how could you operate on that guy? He beats his wife. He's like, look, man, I, you know, I, I, I'm just a surgeon. You know, I go in, I take out cancer, I sew them back up. Well, that's how I view it. And as long as the people on on both sides do their job, it greatly increases. And, you know, and then the third party, you've got, obviously got the judiciary. So as long as the judge does his or her job and all the lawyers do their job, I mean, it's not a perfect system, but that's how the system's works and yeah i mean i don't it's not perfect but it's like nobody is doing anything any different with any more success so it's you know it's and it's always evolving so that's how i view that right my job is to take care of my client i mean just like your job as a journalist you know is to is to put facts out there right and to make sure that like you know that 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 people get the information that listen to your podcast to make well-informed decisions well you're kind of like a lawyer Right. I mean, you're getting your listeners good information so that they can then make good decisions about you know, this issue. What a fascinating perspective that I appreciate so much. You know, I grew well, up. I think journalists are cool. My son wants to be a journalist. And uh, I defended a journalist when I was a law clerk one time early on. And he said the coolest thing. He said the job of the journalist is is to afflict the comfortable and comfort and comfort the afflicted. And I always thought that was a pretty cool. That'd be a pretty cool job. Yeah, I would think so, too. I'm, I'm not a journalist. I have the utmost <laughs> respect for them. Um, as an yeah, attorney yeah, yeah. Uh, who grew up in California, you know, there was a hiring freeze when I graduated law school. And I was sort of had a similar but mirrored experience to you in that I came out wanting to be a prosecutor. And I actually started out in the the civil sector, um, you know, big, big civil litigation, sort of typical, but I really wanted to be a prosecutor. And there was in that hiring freeze, counties all over California were not hiring. And my only option became in the criminal justice or in the, in the criminal sector uh, was a defense firm that was, they were so, they were very well renowned, had done a lot of very famous cases. And I felt at the time, though, that ideologically I couldn't see it as a fit, and I kept trying to find something else. And I ended up there because that became the only option for me for some scheduling reasons that I was dealing with at the time, which was I had a, a part-time job that took up a lot of my time. And so long story short, I became a criminal defense attorney. And it was so surprising to me because I never expected that, again, ideologically. And it was the most humbling fascinating experience. I know God put me there, of course, ordering my steps so that I could honor him in the best way possible. Because to your point, I I learned very quickly and disabused myself very quickly of the notion that it's about guilt or innocence. That has a fundamental place, of course, but it's about the protection 
of the client, of the defendant, um, against the powers of the state. And right. for someone like me, who the, the the more limited the power of the government, the better, the more limited the government in general, the better. Um, it was a beautiful real world application of why we have procedures in place. And when you look clinically at our criminal justice system, all of those protections built in, they do favor the defendant. It's why a, a piece of evidence that has been lost in the chain of custody, a, a, something that was obtained outside of constitutional protections that you you cannot use it it is inadmissible and and verdicts have been thrown out because of it that our right. criminal justice system views the process at oftentimes more important than the result and to your point about justice that's what justice has been deemed as is protection against the state and knowing well, our origins obviously in the, the revolution it, it explain it it underscores why because these people who founded our country they knew what the tyranny of the state and the tyranny of a kingdom looked like. So that's why all of these protections are built in. So, yes, it's well, in ensuring that it's commensurate charges, commensurate sentencing, that procedure has been followed, the law has been followed every step of the way. Um, and I appreciate that you, as you evolved in your career, uh, you know, we all became better attorneys for the experience once the ideology got a little bit put to the if side. If I could say this really quickly, though, right? I mean— the protections that are given to a defendant, okay, are because it's meant to offset the fact. I mean, it's not like we're not coddling criminals by giving them rights, right? What it's meant to offset is, it's meant to offset the fact that it's an attempt to try to offset the fact that once you get charged, people, I mean, you know, they'll say they're going to set it aside, but like, look, it's already an uphill battle. I mean, once the once the government levels an accusation against you, you've already got an uphill battle. And so all these protections that are put in place are not coddling criminals. Those are put in place to try to level the playing field just a little bit. OK, just the human nature that exists. And then to speak to people who defend, you know, like especially like public defenders. I mean, look, Indigent clients in the criminal justice system are the canary in the coal mine, right? I mean, if 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 we extend protections and rights to them, then folks like us are definitely going to get them, right? And so they are the canary in the coal mine, and they tell us how healthy our system is. Um, so I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, and I really do think that you know, as long as everybody does their job and plays by the rules. It's not perfect, but more often than not, we get something that's pretty close to, you know, fair. And that's really about all you can ask for in life. Bill Nettles, so well said. We're so grateful to you, not only for your service in representing both sides of this all too important criminal justice system for us here, but also for your time today. And I look sure. forward to having you back like we talked about. Um, there's I so many cases. whenever you want me. Yeah. <laughs> well, then we will look forward to your unparalleled perspective, as I said earlier, and for you sharing your time and your insight into some pretty awesome cases that we have on the docket moving forward. So thank you so much for your insight today, and we look forward to thank having you. you back soon. To hear more stories like this, you can listen to our past episodes on the Fox True Crime Podcast. Go to foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts to listen and subscribe. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.
everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.